See, I've already gone places. I just want to stay where I am. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode focuses on the structure and the subplots of the film Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Please keep in mind, we will not be talking about the missing pieces here. They may come in side reference, but not too much, I think, because I kind of avoided talking about them in this context. I covered them separately. I did a whole episode yesterday just on the stories of the missing pieces, and I also wove them in some of their themes and motifs into other episodes before that. But for this week coming up, it's all Firewalk With Me focus uh, pretty much to the end. There's some references to things that saying we won't find out yet until the missing pieces or something. Maybe we'll find out more in the missing pieces, kind of alluding to what's to come, even though if you're listening to this on the public podcast, you've already heard that coverage. So sorry for those discrepancies, but I thought it would make more sense to just say this at the outset rather than go through with a fine-tooth comb and try to remove all those types of references. And something else that will come up in these next few episodes is uh, references to the mythology, saying I'm going to cover the subject more in depth in the mythology section, because originally for patrons, that was also a later section here. So as I rearrange this, a few things get lost in translation, but hopefully that's not too confusing for you. The mythology episode, of course, went up a few days ago on uh, Friday to cover the missing pieces and firewalk with me together. This episode is going up a day later than I originally planned, but it's kind of nice to launch the uh, Firewalk Me coverage today. The reason is that today, May 16th, is when the film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. We are on the 30th anniversary tonight, so uh, you are getting to listen to this if you're listening to it right away uh, in that context. Let's talk about the structure of Firewalk with me. In this film, the acts are not evenly spaced. They're also not clearly demarcated from one another, uh, given the lack of commercial breaks, so it's not really a comparable structure to an episode at all. Overall, the film has two clearly distinct sections, the 33-minute Teresa Banks case and the one-hour, 40-minute final week of Laura Palmer. The film is structured more by the succession of days and nights in that second part, uh, sort of in the way that the series overall is. Um, But it's not really structured by clusters of action or focus exactly, although... Think about it, really, the way that the days are packed in, there is a sense that each day kind of has a character and a cluster of its own. So maybe I take that back a little. Given how much material was removed via the, you know, eventually ending up in the missing pieces, these days often don't unfold exactly as they were originally scripted to. Some events were moved around, and others that might have provided more structural balance within a given day are removed, which tightens the pace and the tone and the point of view, but loses some of the dramatic flow. So here's how the film unfolds. Act 1. Teresa's murder. From the extreme close-up of blue static to Teresa's body floating downstream. This, is, this act is two scenes, three minutes long. Lynch places us at our most distance position of the entire film throughout this act, even as we're also the closest we'll actually be to the central crimes until the film's end. So there's some irony there. What I mean is that we experience Teresa's murder and see her body before anybody else does, but all of our viewpoints in these two scenes are obscured by camera position or shadow or physical objects like the plastic that wraps up Teresa. So we're held away even as we're being confronted with the actual event. So Being present does not necessarily equal knowledge in this case. 
Act 2, Dear Meadow Investigation, from Gordon shouting in his office to the fading away from the freeze frame of Chet reaching for the ring under the trailer. This is 17 scenes long, 24 minutes. It's the longest single act of the movie, although it could be broken up into smaller components that are still larger than individual scenes, mini-acts within the act. Gordon contacts Chet, Gordon sends them off, the sheriff's station, the morgue, the diner, the trailer park, Sam and, Ther- and, yeah, Sam and Teresa's body leave, uh, Chet's last stand in the trailer park. However, all of the scenes tend to flow together into one sustained sequence with a singular purpose. In some ways, this passage is the closest to being structured like a normal procedural TV episode, albeit not a normal episode of Twin Peaks, given the lack of ensemble cross-cutting. This passage exists, in other words, to be subverted by the rest of the film, even as it itself subverts the series in a cheeky fashion. Above all, it both illustrates and embodies the idea of a dead end, although clues it provides will play out later for the audience, if not the detectives. Act 3, Jeffrey's at the FBI, from the shadow of the Liberty Bell to the bank of surveillance screens as Gordon shouts, and where is Chester Desmond? This is three scenes, four minutes long. This is the act that sticks out the most awkwardly, barely touching upon what came before, and barely hinting at what's to come, aside from its introduction to Bob. Narratively, this is our first introduction to the spirits in general. Would it be better, though, to leave them off-screen and ominous until they break into Lara's world? Something you could consider, but the scene is kind of so amazing in its own right that you don't really want to lose it. Thematically, one could argue that this act further drives a wedge between us and the FBI as possible saviors, given how out of their league they clearly are. Though many could and would make a contrary case, the sequence mostly seems to exist because it's so exciting in its own right, throwing us off kilter in a way that could better position us to empathize with Laura's headspace, but also potentially alienating us from having as much of a way into the movie as if we just started off with Laura in the first place. I think when you hear a lot of people who can't get into the movie or just thrown off by it, don't know what to make of it, frustrated by it, it's often this first half hour that does it to them. It's like by the time they get to Lara, they're already totally discombobulated and they feel like they don't have a way in. Of course, this sequence also contains a mother load of mythology that will play out in the rest of the film, and it offers possibilities far beyond that. Here is one of those places where Firewalk With Me's nature is a composite work, serving several different and at times even contradictory purposes all at once, is most clear. Act 4 is Cooper looking for Chet. From a view of the trailer park as Carl guides Cooper to Cooper shutting off his tape recorder. This is two scenes, three minutes long. So one of those aforementioned purposes that Firewalk Me has, sometimes contradictory, is to give Cooper something to do especially since Kyle McLaughlin bowed out of conducting the Deer Meadow investigation himself. So here's a quick pair of scenes, the slightest act in the film, in which Cooper reinforces that, yep, he can't really figure out what's going on either. His message to Diane has an air of finality about it, taking the federal investigation as far as it can possibly go before collapsing of impotent exhaustion. Or so it seems. But we haven't seen the last of Cooper, and I'm not just talking about the Red Room. Act 5 is Thursday, February 16th. We're now in 1989. This is Lars' last normal day with the end of the diary as also an organizing principle here. 
It goes from the one year later shot of the Twin Peaks sign to Laura under the fan dissolving into the red curtains. This is 12 scenes, 13 minutes long. Dramatically, this act is the kickoff to Laura's downfall, given the revelation that someone has been tearing pages out of her diary. But so much more happens during these sequences, most of it before the diary incident, indicating that the act also exists to immerse us in Laura's world on a day-to-day basis. It's notable, too, that this day isn't actually a part of Laura's last week proper. There are eight full days left before she's killed, not seven at this point. This reinforces the idea that these scenes are something of a prologue as well as an initiation, setting us up. Laura's relationship to Donna, James, and Bobby, as well as Harold, although that's more of a sideways glimpse than a setup, since we don't see him again. Had more missing pieces been included, this act also would have introduced Laura's relationship to her parents, rather than waiting to do so in a more offhand way in the subsequent act. But more on that later. Then there is something I can only call the Cooper interlude. This goes from the red curtains dissolving into Cooper in his office to Cooper saying she's preparing a great abundance of food. It's a one-minute scene. This passage can't properly be called an act, nor can it plausibly be attached to the act surrounding it although it does lead directly into the next act, thanks to Cooper's dialogue. I already mentioned the most awkward act and the slightest act applied to others, but both titles would definitely apply to this scene if it was an act at all. Its inclusion in the film is frankly kind of bizarre, an interruption even if the scene has enjoyable aspects in its own right. Only if we envision the previous day as a prologue, meant to get Laura's story going before we fully dive in, does this breather make any sort of structural sense in this spot. We'll discuss any significance it might have to the film as a whole later on. Act 6 is Friday, February 17th, Laura's first discoveries, the abuser and the dream. From Laura carrying the Meals on Wheels tray, to Laura staring at her desk after taking down the door picture. It's 14 scenes, 17 minutes long. It's arguably not until 50 minutes into Firewalk With Me that a narrative arc begins to emerge. Everything else up to this point has been table setting for this moment. That's in story terms, obviously, as mood, aesthetic, and thematic amplification. Those previous five acts do serve other purposes. The delivery of the open-door picture frame sets Laura on course to discover Leland's identity as both her abuser and Teresa's killer, the trajectory that will lead directly to her death in six days. This is our introduction to her complicated relationship to her father, who torments her at dinner only to treat her tenderly at night. February 17th also offers our first real day-night dichotomy, given the ambiguity of the Bob fan scene that ended the previous act. That said, this act ends not at night, but in a morning-after sequence, as Laura reflects on her crazy dream. Between the Tremonds, Bob, the little man, the red room, Annie's appearance, the open door, and the ring, this act is loaded with supernatural mythology. But it's the emotional and psychological toll of Laura's responses to Leland that have the biggest impact. Act 7 is Sunday, February 19th. We are skipping a day here. We'll talk about why at another point. This act is devoted to Laura and Donna with asides for the drug plot, from an establishing shot of the Johnson house in the morning to a close-up of Laura reacting as Donna says, why do you do it? Or, if we want to stretch it, this act, all the way to the end of that scene, it could end with Donna wincing after Laura and Leland leave her house. Or if we want to end it with the end of the day itself, we could end this act with the pan across the butts and the empties strewn across the nightclub floor. 
So depending on how where we decide to end this scene, there's an ambiguity here, which we'll talk about. It could be six and a half scenes for 21 minutes, or seven minutes, uh, or seven scenes with 22 minutes, or six scenes with 19 minutes. So here's where dividing the film into acts gets tricky. The Lara Donna material doesn't reach its proper conclusion until the following morning, as they embrace on the couch. The most logical breaking point would be the moment that Leland enters, but of course it's more complicated than that. The two storylines bleed into one another and overlap. Aside from that closing ambiguity, however, or maybe this is what makes that so noticeable in the first place, this act introduces us to an idea which will carry through much of Lara's remaining days, using each day in turn to explore a different relationship that illuminates an aspect of Lara's descent, and often suggests avenues of deliverance. This act is dominated almost entirely by the night out set piece, one of Lynch's finest sequences of sustained action across 17 minutes, the party land sequence alone, with its blaring soundtrack and muffled dialogue and hallucinatory lighting, endures for eight and a half minutes straight, although it feels much longer, and I mean that as a compliment. This act also contains two pretty random asides that don't tie into the Donna and Lara stuff, although I suppose um, they could, you know, the, the reintroduction of Jacques in the scene with Bobby does tie these, uh, these little drug dealing scenes to the evening's events. They could be treated as interludes, though. Um, I see them as part of the act because they don't stand out quite as much as that one Cooper scene in Philadelphia with Albert. But, uh, you know, that they, they, they are some of the last really tangential stuff where we depart from Laura's point of view in, in the film. Act 8 is Monday, February 20th. The theme of this is Leland as Teresa's Killer. And this stretches from the Hayward entrance just before Leland steps inside to Leland standing ominously in the living room after remembering how he killed Teresa. Of course, as mentioned, the line between this and the previous act is kind of blurry, so you could also start it with Leland and Laura driving down the road uh, in the morning, or uh, you could start it even further back with the dissolve into a misty mountainous tree line after the party land sequence. So depending on that... uh, I would mark it as eight and a half scenes with nine minutes. It could also be eight scenes with eight minutes or nine scenes with 10 minutes, depending where you draw that line. So although Laura has an important dramatic moments, several important dramatic moments in this act, confronting her father and experiencing an epiphany about the Owl Cave Ring, this is really Leland's moment to shine or sink, I guess, in a sense. This act is mostly about his own guilt and anxiety, and it's the only time in the movie we are really allowed inside his own head. After Laura's Jacques and Renette's suggestive dialogue in the Partyland sequence, we're also offered a resolution to the Teresa Banks mystery almost exactly an hour to the second after Cooper was stumped. If the most important action of the previous day unfolded at night, this time it unfolds in broad daylight. Act 9 is Tuesday, February 21st. This is about Laura and Bobby. goes from an establishing shot of the Palmer house in the morning to Bobby's flashlight weaving through the dark woods as he flees with a laughing Laura. This is just three scenes, seven minutes long. Playing almost as a comic reprieve, despite containing a bloody murder, this act is the most difficult to tie into Laura's trajectory. Although, as in the previous two acts, we're offered unexpected resolution for open-ended Deer Meadow material, given the identity of the victim. It's most helpful as a character flourish, reminding us of her more mischievous side after so many scenes of Laura in despair or defiance. And her dynamic with Bobby here works as a counterpoint 
to her dynamic with the innocent Donna in the earlier act. Act 10 is Wednesday, February 22nd. The focus of this is Laura and Leland. From a wide shot of Laura's street facing up a hill as James pulls off a side street on his motorcycle, to a black screen as Laura screams. This act is six scenes, six minutes long. The most important scene in the film, except arguably for the climax, which depends on this one as its premise, or maybe the wash your hands scene, which provides a premise for this one, this encounter between Leland and Laura, which begins as uh, Laura and Bob, is built upon a foundation of several shorter scenes that come right before. Laura meeting James outside, which is brilliantly transposed here from its original Saturday slot, and then cross-cutting between Laura and her parents, which forms a broader sequence reminiscent of the one in which Maddie was killed. This is, emotionally, the point of no return, although one more dramatic beat remains to set Leland as well as Laura down that last grim road. Act 11 is Thursday, February 23rd, Laura's last day. With, as a, as a story theme, not quite as uh, important to the act as, as it just being her last day in general, uh, Laura and James' relationship. That is something of a, um, a core to this act as well. Goes from the fade up on Laura's bowl of cereal as her scream fades away on the soundtrack, and ends with a medium two-shot of Leo and Renette staring at Laura in the woods at night. This is 11 scenes, 12 minutes long. In striking contrast to the series, which detailed Laura's final ordinary activities with obsessive detail, the film presents her last day as a chaotic, crushing blur. I doubt anyone was expecting this by now, but there are no more Meals on Wheels runs, no tutoring of Johnny and Josie, no interaction with the broader community at all. This act is all about Laura's internal state. That said, there is a poignant final moment with Bobby. Donna's purpose in the narrative is over. And James gets to share Laura's final significant moments of interaction with anybody. If it wasn't already dominated by her sense of doom, this act would be defined by her relationship to James. Here, in contrast to the day's events that the movie bypasses, in the night scenes, we get a blow-by-blow of everything that James would tell Donna about in the pilot, and more. This act is actually where the film really starts to dovetail with the pilot. If, for much of it, it seemed like, wow, we are so far from Twin Peaks, the show, in a way we're coming back, but like almost almost like flying over it, like looking at the events of the pilot now from this elevated view. You could make the opposite argument, I suppose, where everybody's looking back and analyzing the intense... Uh, human drama, a fire walk with me from a more elevated detective-like perspective in uh, in the pilot. But I guess that I, I suppose that just depends on what being higher up means in your analogy, if that makes sense. Uh, I kind of see it the other way around just because in the pilot we're so lost and in fire walk with me, uh, we understand everything that they're lost about in the pilot, I think. We're lost in a different way, I suppose, in the film. Act 12 is Laura dies on the night of February 23rd to 24th, from establishing shot of Jacques' cabin in the woods at night to the black frames after the strobing light on a very blurry, obscured Leland covering Laura with plastic, shot from the corpse's point of view. This is two scenes, 
10 minutes long. The structure of this act uh, can be easy to miss, given how saturated it is and overwhelming violence and terror. But there is a structure there, building toward the angel in the ring. This will be discussed in far more detail as we outline Lara's murder and her mystery and all of that. This is the only act which is essentially one long, single sequence, but it doesn't quite make sense to lump it in with the events of the day. It has, as Bob says in The Missing Pieces, the fury of its own momentum. And finally, if we can call it an act, the 13th act, Coda. This goes from the wide, high-angle shot of Leland pulling Lara's plastic-wrapped body from the train car, with Renette lying unconscious on the forest floor nearby, to the final credits rolling past a blue background with a still image of a smiling Laura. So we could include the you know him placing the body in the water with the 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 night of the murder, but I think it's important to end that previous act. Not so much with Laura's death because she's already dead by the time he's wrapping her in the plastic, but we're still somehow seeing it through her eyes, even after she's dead, we're inside of the plastic being wrapped up, and that feels like the place to end that act. So this one begins now with a more removed view of Leland uh, pulling the, the, the corpse out of the train car, and we don't really get to be uh, with Laura, in a sense, until we're with her in the red room in that final sequence. This uh, is seven scenes, ten minutes long, so quite a lot going on here. It's a cascade of almost wordless images, uh, except for the arms request in the red room and the monkey's almost inaudible whisper. This final sequence weaves together familiar iconography from the series. Laura's body floating near the giant log, the red curtains in Glastonbury Grove, even the exact shot of Laura's face being unwrapped in the pilot. And it combines those with motifs that belong starkly and solely to the film a blue monkey in close-up, and finally the angel suspended in flickering light. For a movie that is often messy and even haphazard in its narrative structure, there is an elegant, beautiful symmetry here between both the beginning and end of the film, a blue haze abstracted at first in those opening credits and then containing a human form uh, in the last sequence with the end credits. And there's also the beautiful symmetry between the end of the film and the end of most episodes. But this portrait of Lara is full of warmth and understanding, rather than distance and incomprehension. Let's move on now to the subplots. And again, we're moving backwards, so instead of starting with the ones that have been established the earliest in the show and building up to the newest ones, we're going to start with uh, the newest ones. And I'll just mention at the outset... I didn't see any standalone scenes in Firewalk Me. Everything feels related to some other plot, usually the Laura plot or the Teresa plot in some way. So nothing that was just isolated to like its own story, although the Philip Jeffries scenes are almost that. Um, they're important enough and they stretch through enough different scenes, two or three, that uh, I think I could call them the establishment of a storyline. Who knows where this could go uh, beyond Firewalk with me, though. Certainly nowhere in the immediate future, since this was kind of the end of uh, Twin Peaks for a time. 
But let's talk about that Philip Jeffries story, uh, just the scenes that are in it, basically. So the first one is Agent Cooper telling Gordon Cole that he's worried because of a dream he had. This opens with a shot of uh, the shadow of the Liberty Bell, which is interesting. We pan up to the Liberty Bell, which is like the most obvious symbol we could have for Philadelphia. And then, of course, it says like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania or something, or just Philadelphia FBI. I can't remember what it says, but it's it just says Philadelphia is like a title like to inform us, yes, the Liberty Bell is in Philadelphia. We know it's such an odd kind of cheeky moment. But the Liberty Bell, which is this cracked bell that supposedly cracked while it was ringing out, I, you know, I should know the, the lore of it more than I do, but it's something to do with... Um, I don't think it was like a warning bell. You know what? I'm going to look this up now so I can be the one informing you. Okay, so here we go. The Liberty Bell was uh, rung out in Philadelphia on July 8, 1776 to summon the townspeople to hear the, reading, the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence. So there we go. I knew it had something to do with kind of the beginning of the Revolutionary War and that that era, but uh, did not could not remember the exact details. Now, interestingly enough, it was cracked years earlier. Um, there was like a, something went wrong with the, the metal, and uh, they had to recast it. And so it always had that kind of symbol to it, which is an interesting contradiction in a way. I know we're getting a little off tangent here, but I think it'll tie back into what we're talking about, this idea of like the symbol of liberty being cracked. I suppose you could find some interesting resonance in that. And uh, it was also used, it's been used by sort of left and right alike. It was used in the Cold War as sort of a symbol of like anti-communist defiance. It was used during protests in the 60s as kind of a symbol of like individual freedom and, and uh, you know, getting out from under the, the sort of uh, ruling elite of the time. And also by abolitionists in the 1800s quite frequently as a symbol. And I think that was when it began being called the Liberty Bell. At least that's what I'm reading in my <laughs> in my quick offhand research. So what's interesting about this is a couple things. First of all, this is the first kind of, uh, actually it isn't the first, but it's the most prominent symbol of kind of Americana that we get throughout this film, which we get quite a bit in the first half hour. Um, there is a Dwight Eisenhower portrait in the FBI headquarters, there's, I think there might be two portraits of Eisenhower, actually. And there's also a drawing of the Liberty Bell hanging on one of the pillars in this office. Um, Albert and Gordon both have flag pins on their lapels. There is a picture of the Founding Fathers that you can see in the background uh, as well, sort of hazy in the background as uh, Jeffries is coming in and accosting them. And there are American flags throughout the film, particularly I'm going to catalog them as we go through them in Deer Meadow, just, uh, and also in the Oregon station where, uh, Gordon is calling from. So there's the, all this Americana in the first part of the film. Uh, Grail Marcus has written about this fascinatingly, not those particular motifs, but just in general, the idea of Twin Peaks as a kind of symbol of America and in American history in his book, uh, The Shape of Things to Come, which I will be quoting from quite a bit, sprinkling these quotes. I just reread the chapter before, uh, doing this recording, and there's just so many great observations in the way he puts things in there worth mentioning. But uh, also, I think, just beyond that, the idea of the symbol of liberty and independence and freedom being cracked, I think, relates in an interesting way just to the Laura Palmer story, actually, uh, what she's trying to achieve in this film and how it's achieved and the idea of this 
kind of crack in a beautiful symbol is is very Lynchian, actually, uh, which is fascinating to think of. I don't think I ever watched this film before or talked about it until this moment, thinking about the Liberty Bell as anything other than, oh, that's funny, he's using a, a generic motif to show where we are in like the most obvious way. But there is something Lynchian about the Liberty Bell, come to think of it. And uh, th- this is also something Grail Marcus talks about in the book, this idea of like, like he quotes a country song called Independence Day about a woman who burns, kills her husband and burns down the house on the 4th of July, kind of declaring her independence from this abuser and tying it in with these patriotic themes as well. So a lot going on there. Uh, also, we're talking about flag pins. Um, Gordon has a pin on his lapel that has like an L on it. It's like some sort of lodge pin i don't know what i tried to look it up i couldn't find anything if it was like masonic or what but uh, i thought that was interesting too when uh cooper is telling gordon about his dream he says it's 10 10 a.m on february 16th i'm worried about today because of the dream i had and uh, a few interesting things about that first of all the timing february 16th that's the day that we first meet laura but it's a year later what happened in the script is this scene in the FBI headquarters was supposed to take place in the middle of Laura's school day, like, and be part of that year. And this is kind of confusing, but bear with me here. In the script, it's like they do all the Deer Meadow stuff, and then it cuts to, I think, a year later. They do some Laura stuff, and they're cutting back and forth between Laura and Philadelphia, and Jeffrey's coming in. And then back to Laura, and we kind of stick with her for the most part from there on. In the film, they added all the stuff of Cooper going back to Deer Meadow. Uh, well, no, actually, I think that might be in the script, but like it, it happens before the Jeffries stuff. So the Jeffries stuff was supposed to take place in 1989, in February, when Laura is killed. And in the film, because they move it around, they have they insert um, voiceover, like they insert ADR at the end of the scene saying, and w- and news from Deer Meadow, Chet Desmond just disappeared. And then we have another shot where they look at the surveillance cameras and Gordon goes, and where is Chester Desmond? Those are like inserted after the scenes were shot so that it would look like it took place uh, around that same time. I guess they just found in editing, it made more sense in that spot. So little detail there. And uh, also, though, when Cooper mentions, it reminds me, I'm worried about today because of the dream I had. And then we cut to this strange sequence where he is walking back and forth from a surveillance camera to the to the room with all the TVs and trying to see something. And uh, then the elevator opens. Philip Jeffries walks out of the elevator and uh, walks past Cooper. Cooper doesn't even notice him. He goes back to the room, sees the image of Jeffries walking in behind him and sees himself like stuck to the screen in a way like it's his he's on the screen at the same time that he's looking at himself so it's this weird split which of course resonates with what happens in the finale but it's also bizarre because he's so fixated on this it's like he doesn't even notice jeffrey's there's so many things going on at once and people not acting in a logical way including by the way the totally nonchalant security guard who just sits there like "Mm, yep definitely on two screens at once like just doesn't even seem to care (laughs) like i love how lynch directs that actor and uh, I, I sometimes wonder watching it, it's like, is this a dream sequence? Is this the dream sequence we're watching? Like, did Lynch just cleverly set us up for a flashback where uh, where Gordon 
where where Cooper's telling Gordon, I had a dream, and now we're seeing the dream. But then, of course, where would that end? Because he does seem to really go to investigate Chet. And uh, John Thorne, the editor of Wrapped in Plastic, was trying to explain this. Like, he was wondering if that part was a dream, and and uh, his co-editor, uh, Craig Miller, was getting confused. Like, what, what are you saying? Like, everything in the first half hour is a dream? And John was like, no, no, I mean the part. And then he started to think about it. He goes, oh, wow, maybe, maybe like Chet Desmond is a dream avatar for Cooper. And he came up with this whole theory uh, about uh, the Deer Meadow sequence, all, everything, up to the point where Cooper says who knows where or when, being a dream in which Cooper revisits his uh, investigation of Teresa Banks using Chet Desmond as a kind of a mask in a way. A very interesting theory. I will link up whatever is online of it. I think it's mostly to be found in his book, The Essential Wrapped in Plastic Pathways Through Twin Peaks, where uh, he reprints the full uh, essay as it was written. But we also discussed it in an interview I did with him. I'll, I'll link that. And also, I think he posted a shortened version of it on his blog years ago. So I'll, I'll link all that in the show notes. You can check that out. But back to this sequence, uh, as Jeffries enters into the room, we have uh, there's the, a the sequence there sort of intercut with images from the spirit world, but really it's actually mostly replaced by images from the spirit world. So we hear Jeffries talking, but uh, we're seeing all of these images above the convenience store, Bob and the little man and so forth. Now this we're going to talk about in the mythology section in the in, when we get to that, because that that's obviously where this belongs. But a few notations here of this sequence as well. I mentioned we see flags a lot. There, there's a, a flag for our flag watch. Uh, there's an American flag next to the elevator as Jeffries gets out on the seventh floor in the sequence. Uh, also, we see Nixon bowling on the... Uh, there's a picture of Nixon bowling on the wall, decorating Gordon's office. <laughs> it's kind of his overall design aesthetic there. And I love there's a photo, like a still promotional photo um, of all of the agents of Cooper, uh, Albert, Gordon, and Jeffries, you know, three of them in their black suits, one of them in their white suit, all standing calmly in front of like an Eisenhower painting uh, or photo. Like they're just like, as if they just paused mid meltdown to pose for a group shot. (laughs) I love that idea. It's always something funny about promotional stills, how they have to sort of freeze a dramatic moment in a movie. And so it's like, they just pile them all up, like line up guys, here you go. Take a picture. Okay, Philip, you can go back to, to wherever you came from now. And then finally we have the scene where Gordon and Cooper are investigating the surveillance tapes and looking at them and trying to figure out if Jeffries is really there. And sure enough, cause, cause Albert just says he got in a good news from the front desk. It says Jeffries was never here, even though, you know, they just all saw him in the room. And then as they're looking at the surveillance tape, they can see, nope, there's there's a recording of it. And I kind of get a kick out of that Lynch does that. He does it from time to time where it's like, oh, you want to read this all as being in their heads? Well, look at this. Here, it isn't. He did this once with a, uh, a Project Hotel Room, an anthology film he shot for HBO, where there's a sketch with Harry Dean Stan and um, is his name Freddie Jones, the actor from The Elephant Man, and uh, and Glenn Headley, the actress. And there's like a character who is sort of replaced his identity swaps with another. It's complicated to explain, but the point is it's this whole kind of surreal, is it or isn't it idea. And uh, Lynch wrote this with uh, Barry Gifford who wrote wild at heart or wrote the book that wild at heart is based on. And uh, Barry Gifford was kind of horrified because at one point they were trying to figure out the mechanics of it. And Lynch was like, 
you know, because they find the other guy's ID card in like Harry Dean Stanton's pocket. So they're like, oh, you really are this guy or something. But Lynch was like, why don't we have him put the wallet into Harry Dean's pocket? And it's like, well, wait, no, that, 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 that it was supposed to be some sort of metaphor. Now you're having him literally do it. But Lynch likes to create that slippage between metaphor and supernatural and reality and kind of frustrate all observations. Um, it reminds me of that, this idea of, look, he is on the surveillance tape. We've proved it. Like that just kind of idea cracks me up. Okay, on to another storyline, which is related to this, which we've touched on already, Chet Desmond's disappearance. This happens when uh, Chet is reaching for the ring under the trailer, and we fade to black. So it's sort of the end of the Teresa storyline in some ways, though we'll come back to it a little throughout the film, and the beginning of a separate thread, which is, okay, well, now what the hell happened to Chet? And as I said, there are those lines of dialogue inserted over the Jeffries scene or the end of it. And news from Deer Meadow, Chet Desmond has disappeared. And then Gordon saying, and where is Chet Desmond? Now, what's funny is when he says this in that scene where they're looking at the surveillance tapes, and other people have noticed this as well. This is like something that people individually, like it's striking to the eye. There is a similar figure who looks like Chris Isaac in a trench coat sauntering through the front doors on one of the screens. It's like the moment he's asking, where's Chet Desmond? It's like, oh, wait, he's right there walking into FBI headquarters, which I don't think is the case. But it's funny that Lynch chose that shot to kind of use there. Um, Maybe all FBI agents look the same in their trench coats on on surveillance footage. But I did find that striking. A Cooper asks Carl about Chet when he's at the trailer park trying to figure out what happened to him. And he's saying, well, I was directing him to Cliff Howard's trailer. Some interesting stuff about that. Some theories that uh, have been concocted about that. Um, which we'll get to. But uh, Carl is saying, well, you know, the Cliff Howard's trailer, the deputy's over here. And uh, and and Cooper just is like, I'm going to go in this direction. He walks another direction. He's like, why are you going there? And he says, God damn, you people are confusing, which another great Harry Dean Stanton delivery. In the Grail Markets essay that I mentioned about Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, He actually ends it by focusing on an image which fascinates him, which he's coming back to. He's written about earlier in the essay of Chet Desmond standing in the trailer park in the moment before he goes off off screen toward the other trailer. Uh, He quotes Gordon saying, Agent Desmond has disappeared. And then Grail Marcus writes, But coming out of the expressions you have seen on Desmond's face, out of a cool, quiet contemplation of a malevolence he has never learned to track because it is hidden by the beauty at his back, The feeling is less that he has been abducted by supernatural forces than that he has been devoured by the story or gone to live in the woods. And I I love that that sentence. Because to me, I've never been really satisfied with the idea that it's like uh, Chet touched the ring and now he's zapped off to the lodge. Like it, it seems like somehow a little less mysterious, a little less rich than just not really knowing what happened to him. And it's like the story ran out of purpose for him. Like he couldn't go any further with it. He couldn't know anything else. The ring could not reveal its secrets to him. So we have to just end there and pull him out. There's like a meta aspect to it that I really like. So now moving backward from the new stories to older stories that have their roots on the show. From episode 29, we have the Cooper Annie and Lodge doppelganger storylines that are kind of birthed in that moment but stretch back they have their roots in earlier episodes like episodes four episodes nine and episodes 23 where 
respectively, like Cooper's backstory is revealed. Uh, the idea of Wind of Earl is brought in as somebody who's going to eventually facilitate all of this. And then also like Annie comes to town and Cooper starts the romance with her. So all of that coalesces in that final episode and leaves us with apparently a possessed Cooper or a doppelganger out in the world. It isn't totally clear on the show. The film seems to clarify it a little bit more. So we have Cooper seeing himself, as I mentioned, on the surveillance screen, kind of a callback to the finale, this idea that there are two of him. And then Jeffries, just to further underscore that, when he's in the FBI office, he said, he points at Cooper and he says, who do you think that is there? And uh, Gordon says, like, that's Cooper or something. And Cooper's freaking out. What's going on here? It's this idea of, and it's even spookier because this is a prequel, like a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Cooper at the end of Twin Peaks. And then, of course, later we do see Cooper in the Red Room with the little man during uh, Lars' dream where he turns and he said, he's saying, don't take the ring and all of that. I think knowing that Cooper has shared dreams with Laura in the past, our first assumption for this could easily be, okay, um, he's he's dreaming and he's sharing a dream space with Laura. However, the thing that comes after maybe makes us reconsider what's really going on here, and that is Annie showing up in Laura's bed and saying, uh, delivering the message about the good deal, Dale. And we'll talk about this more in the mythology section, but there's an idea here now for the first time really in Twin Peaks that the split between Cooper and the doppelganger is not just within the lodge, and then whoever gets out is now the the Cooper. It's the idea that there's actually like a division and there is a good Cooper left behind. He's not just obliterated by the bad one. So again, we'll save most of that discussion for mythology, but worth touching on here. Beyond the finale, it's a different story. As we move backwards through seasons two and even into seasons one, most of the subplots are dead and gone at this point. We have nothing for the mystery box that the Packard family is obsessed with, nothing for Ben and Donna's mother, uh, a second entry of nothing for the Miss Twin Peaks contest, and second entry of nothing for the Audrey and John Justice Wheeler romance. There's nothing for Ben trying to be good, second entry of nothing for the Milford Bride, nothing for super teen Nadine, and uh, third entry of nothing for Bobby's new job. Bobby is way back where he began as this young punk drug dealer, no longer a slicked back, uh, ambitious go-getter working for Ben Horn. Just one of many examples of how surreal it is to watch this film after the series. Um, It's like simultaneously strange and familiar, like you're being pulled away from where you were, but also yanked back to where you began, to something more fundamental. There's nothing for Lucy's pregnancy, and we really have to go back... to uh, subplots introduced way back in episode one of the series to find something that has some resonance and some follow-through in Twin Peaks. So all of that, episodes two through 28, uh, all the new developments that came in between those, nothing in Firewalk with me to do with that. And it makes sense since it is largely a prequel, um, but there are those sequel elements to it which bring us the finale stuff. So in episode one... They introduce the storyline of cocaine in Twin Peaks. And we haven't seen this in Twin Peaks for five entries. The last time it showed up 
was, uh, let's see, I believe around the um, Cooper being restored to the FBI. So this idea that like now we're finally resolving his suspension, which was all tied to this drug stuff. Now, at this point, it's where we're way back again to the fundamentals, where it's uh, Leo talking to Bobby on the phone about their drug, their, their, uh, you know, what he owes him and how he doesn't have anything else he confront him. And then Bobby calling Jacques to set up the drug deal and Jacques actually setting him up with Cliff Howard, the deputy from Deer Meadow, who comes and has his head blown off by Bobby. But it's after he tries to shoot Bobby, which always makes me wonder, like, why... Why is Jacques setting Bobby up? And does he not know like Laura will be there too? Because he sees Laura that night and is like partying with her like, hey, come to my cabin. He's not like, oh, hey, I'm going to kill your boyfriend and you'll probably be there too. It's like, hey, come party with me on Thursday at my cabin. It's like, what is Jacques doing? What is what is this whole scenario? Why is Cliff going to shoot Bobby? What is, you know, I just, I wonder about that. Like it's another mystery opened up by an answer, of course, as Twin Peaks always does. There's nothing for the uh, Cooper-Audrey flirtation, obviously, (laughs) in this film. And now we're back into storylines introduced in the pilot. And there are quite a few of those that do play out in the film. Um, Not as much as the Laura stuff does, obviously. But, you know, we have, for example, Bobby killed a guy. It's been 25 entries since anything was mentioned about uh, about that storyline. The last time it was referenced at all in the series was when Bobby was in Dr. Jacoby's office with his parents, and Dr. Jacoby said, "Uh, do you ever kill anybody, Bobby? And he goes, what? Or something like that. Like, he doesn't know what to make of the question. No, he changes the subject, says, well, my father killed people in war. Uh, But we found out in the pilot, of course, that uh, from James, that Bobby was, Laura had said Bobby killed someone. There's all this wondering what it's about. In The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, they come up with a scenario which is not the one in the film. So it's like a whole other, you know, maybe if you want to treat that as canon, maybe Bobby killed two people and just forgot about one of them or something. But in this film, for all the important drama given to it, for obviously it's going to be, you know, traumatizing to be a teenager out in the woods, fearing for your life, shooting somebody in the head and freaking out and being paranoid and all that. But it was clear self-defense. I mean, you know, the guy was a, pulling out a gun to shoot him i don't think he was pulling it out to show it off to him i think he even points it at him so uh it's funny how when this encounter happens when bobby shoots the deputy uh laura is obsessed with this idea that you killed mike and it's such a i love it because it's such a strange brilliant little non sequitur you can read things into it you can look of course at the whole bob and mike thing many people have like okay this is sort of a real-world reflection of the idea that Bob has control over Laura and Mike can't help her and all of that. Um, But there's also just something totally ridiculous about it. Like, you could see two people fixating on this idea, especially when they're, like, really high of, like, oh, my God, like, this, what if it's this thing? And then just, like, constantly referring back to it, like this inside joke that's taking on a life of its own and only makes sense in their head at this time. So I love that bit. And it it does strike me as odd that he's doing a terrible job burying Cliff, but it seems like nobody ever found this body near the mill, you know? Uh, There's no follow-up on it ever. It's something the show kind of forgot about, and for whatever reason, Lynch was really, Lynch and Engels were really intrigued to pull back up and and investigate. And we do get a return to the storyline near the end of the film, when Lara tells James, just like he said she did, that uh, 
you know, Bobby killed somebody. And he doesn't seem to believe her. Uh, they just, what are you talking about? Bobby didn't kill anyone. She's like, yeah, that's right, right. And just kind of lets it drop. So only after she dies does it come back and haunt him. He's very concerned about this idea the next day. But for the moment, it's just kind of brushed past. This is the second entry of Nothing for Josie and Harry. We have Nothing for Ed and Norma. Mike and Donna, we do have some recurrence for their storyline. It's been five entries since the last time anything was touched upon about that. A lot longer than that since it was a serious storyline. But uh, when uh, Mike shows up at the Great Northern with Nadine, and uh, it's the morning after, and they're all in bliss, and Donna sort of passes them and giggles. He's like, hey, Donna. That's the last time we get any sort of no, you know, uh, reference to Mike and Donna having had a relationship. So now in this moment, we're back in the prequel. They, they are of course still dating, but, uh, she's not totally enamored of him. It seems she seems like she's more into James as we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but we have the scene where Mike and Bobby are standing in the car calling Delora and Donna, Hey, come on, Donna, come walk with us, come, come ride with us or something. And they kind of tease them back and that's the only moment we see Mike in the movie. But he does come up again later when Donna asks, uh, Laura, do you think Mike could ever write a poem? And I love the idea, again, a non sequitur involving Mike that you could read sort of multiple ways. Is this is because, of course, Spirit Mike does write a poem. Firewalk with me poem. So that's an interesting uh, element there that it took me a long time to kind of think of. For Nadine's Drape Runners, we have nothing in the film, obviously. For the James and Donna romance, uh, this also, that same episode where she sees Mike in Great Northern is the last time we have a James Donna reference where he's writing her a postcard from San Francisco as he's traveled off. And uh, Doc Hayward says, oh, he'll be back. You'll see him again. And I guess in a sense she does here in a, in a prequel <laughs> where it's the past. And at this point, they aren't a couple. She's just a third wheel. But she looks kind of bashfully at him as he approaches Laura, and then she knows her place. She, like, steps back to the—this is, you know, in the high school stairway. She steps back and lets James and Laura have their moment together. This moment, I think, would have had a bigger impact if it had actually been Lara Flynn Boyle playing Donna in the film. I'm actually mostly fine with Maura Kelly's performance. I think she adds an interesting element to Donna where it's like she's a more innocent Donna than we saw on the show, even in the pilot. And uh, it—, it kind of makes her seem more in danger in a way at certain points. And it gives you a sense of like, this was the Donna before Lara died. And then there's the Donna after, you know, it's like she actually physically changed as a person because it was such a big event. So, you know, it works for me on that level, but I do have to say if, if this was the scene where it's like Lara Flynn Boyle kind of, oh, okay. And she steps back and kind of grins a little and lets Lara and James talk, that would actually have kind of a wallop, like, wow, we are back in the past, aren't we? Like all these characters have been through. And in this moment, they're now like, she's, she's like a timid, you know, observer of his big romance with her best friend. I, I kind of like that idea. And so later James comes back into the, uh, into Donna's dialogue when she's talking to Laura about, you know, she knows, well, obviously, cause we just saw the scene in the school she knows that Laura has the secret relationship with James and she's like comparing him to Bobby and building him up says, James is so dreamy. And, uh, Laura chuckles to herself. I think that's when she says, you know, why don't you, uh, why don't you write a poem about him or something? Like she knows that Donna has a crush on him. For the Shelley, Bobby and Leo storyline, we have the one moment 
which I think is only in the film because it's sort of a side tangent to uh, the drug deal stuff that needs to be built up. But we have Leo tormenting Shelly. But it's funny how it happens because he's cleaning the floor. Shelly's standing to the side more annoyed than, uh, than like, nervous. And just saying, come on, Leo, you've been, you know, you've been taking too many bennies or whatever. Like, calm down, you're on speed. Just take it easy. I got to get to work. And he grabs her by the head and shoves her down and she looks surprised. And this makes me wonder, because I don't think they've been married for very long, if the abuse we see on Twin Peaks is actually kind of the beginning of it. Like if it hasn't been going on for, um, you know, months or even years, and it's actually just something that started to develop recently in their relationship where he actually is like hitting her and grabbing her and throwing her around. And he was probably already yelling at her, but but, you know, that it took that extra level with like the soap and the sock and all of that. Uh, the way it's framed in this moment is interesting. Like, she's not afraid of him at first. There's nothing for the Ghostwood Packard Sawmill plot and second entry of nothing for the Packard family life. And then finally, we have something that uh, we kind of had to put in its own category. This was introduced in the pilot, um, even after some of that stuff, like Packard Sawmill or Shelly Bobby Leo. Uh, it comes in when Cooper arrives in town, but it's so important to fire walk with me we had to pull it away from those and basically treat it as the coda to the non-Lara subplots and kind of a transition into the Lara storylines. And that, of course, is the Teresa Banks case. It's been 14 entries since the last appearance of this storyline. That would be back in episode 16 where Leland dies and he confesses to killing Teresa. It's interesting that they have him do this at this moment. She's been largely forgotten throughout the series. They hadn't brought her up in a while. And uh, he doesn't confess to killing Maddie, if I'm not mistaken, at least not as I think he confesses as Bob. But when he's like Leland and the, the water's coming down and Cooper's holding him and he's sobbing and he says, he, oh, my God, I killed my daughter. He mentions in that moment that he killed Teresa as well and says it was because they like wanted lives. They made me kill that girl, Teresa. So it's just seen as like sort of almost even though they did bother to bring it back up. It sort of brushed off as like, okay, well, this was just like another person he killed in his like quest for, you know, um, uh, the this like on behalf of the spirits, let's say, to conquer bodies and souls and things like that. And not really gone into more detail than that. So like, what does that mean? Did like they try to possess Teresa and failed, and so he killed her. Like, it's actually a little confusing because the reason he killed Laura is because he couldn't possess her. So, like, was Teresa somebody else who refused? Was it a demonstration of like his loyalty to them or something? This is, you know, how it's presented in the in the series. The film gives us something very different, which informs really how we view the Leland Bob thing in general and also his relationship with Laura and all of that. So let's go through that scene by scene. We're going to talk about this in more detail again in its own section as one of the two big mysteries of the movie. Who killed Teresa Banks and why was Laura Palmer killed? But let's go through the scenes that are part of this and, and pull out little strands here and there. So we have the credits over the TV static opening the film, zooming out from that blue before the set is smashed. We discussed this in our opening uh, the. Uh, description of the opening sequence i like how the first color we see in the film is blue blue really is the color of fire walk with me uh which is interesting given you know fire and red and all of that 
but it, it blue is the motif that we have. It's the beginning. It's the end of the film. We have the questions in the world of blue song. We have Bob, obviously his blue jacket. We have a lot of water throughout the film. The blue kind of resembles, especially as it's moving like this, the static across the TV screen, the water. And then of course, it's also just significant to see a TV smashed like this idea of like destroying as as many critics have noted as i've already read their observations about like we're destroying the tv show it could be read as like the producers destroyed it now we have to make this film it could be read as like we're destroying the legacy of twin peaks this film is in many ways a rejection and a subversion of twin peaks even if there's other things going on as well so then we have the shot of Teresa Banks' body floating down the river. And I should mention when the when the TV is smashed, we hear someone screaming, no, no, and then a thwack. And that is the death of Teresa Banks. So we see her body floating down the river. And then we have Gordon Cole calling from Oregon. And uh, interesting now, we're already out of state. So even if Teresa was killed in Washington, we don't quite know where yet. We, well, we do, actually, because uh, Cooper says in the, op- in the pilot that uh, where Teresa is introduced as like the previous victim of Bob because she had the letter under her fingernail and was wrapped in plastic and all of that. So they have, they, they know it's the same killer. And uh, he says it was in like an opposite corner of the state. She was a drifter, no family, nobody knew or cared until today. Laura Palmer's death is what makes Teresa Banks death mean anything uh, to anybody. So uh, anyways, we do know in that pilot that she was killed in like a different corner of the state. So we know that it's within Washington, but now we're seeing Gordon Cole in Oregon, and it's like, okay, and now suddenly we're in, then we're in Chet Desmond, talking to him from his car at a strange crime scene in Fargo, North Dakota. So it's like, well, wait, okay, and then they're meeting in a airfield in Oregon. So it's like, we're outside of the state that we've been in through the whole series. Even when we traveled a field for like the weird Evelyn Marsh stuff, that was still like, okay, we're in Washington. I mean, I guess when we go to Canada, we're outside, but that's like literally right across the border. So we're actually traveling further afield now. And of course, we will travel further afield as the film goes along. Um, But, you know, just this alone is already a sign that like, you know, (laughs) to mix the metaphor, the geographical metaphors even more, we're not in Kansas anymore. The shot of the airplane approaching the Oregon airport, uh, just that in itself right away gives me a feel of like, okay, we're in a different world than the series. It's from like within the cockpit of the airplane. You see it kind of tilting and and flying above the forest. And that's like a shot you would never see in the series in any context, something like that. So not just the, 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 the technical mechanics of it, but like the sort of the style of it, the bounciness, the, this is part of what I was discussing before with the feel of the film, this idea of like, the Deer Meadow sequence, all of this is like this sort of loose, open, wandering kind of uh, camera style that's like a little more locked down than what we'll see later in the film, but but still, like I feel like they were shooting on a tripod probably more than a steady cam, but that maybe it was um, kept a little loose and mobile on there. Like it wasn't, that the camera wasn't totally tightened up and locked down. It was, um, I'm trying to think of the term to use, but where it's like you can kind of move it around a little bit and... Uh, shake up the frame even. So Gordon Cole introduces Chet and uh, uh, to Sam Stanley and then also to Lil, the dancing woman. It's funny, I've seen this uh, film so many times now that I can just roll past Lil. Like I just put the movie in, I was starting to take notes and I kind of was like, oh, da, da. and I was like, oh yeah, Lil just did her thing. Like I didn't even, I mean, it's such a surreal moment when you first see it, but uh, Twin Peaks fans can get uh, <laughs> pretty used to some some strange stuff. So, this is also interesting. He tells 
he tells Chet that Sam cracked the Whitman case. And uh, I knew I'd heard somewhere what this was referring to, and I Googled it, I couldn't find it, but luckily I remembered that it was the Diane podcast, their episode on Firewalk With Me. And I think it is the one of the hosts, Bob, actually looked this up and he cracked the cracking of the Whitman case. So what he said was that in 1992, it was a longstanding cold case dating from the 40s, uh, pretty much quoting verbatim here what he said, to do with 10 of Walt Whitman's original notebooks, which were national treasures and were moved during the war to avoid them getting damaged. And when they were moved back again, someone noticed that 10 of his notebooks had gone missing. The FBI were called in. No one knew. It was like an embarrassment for the FBI that they couldn't solve this case of like the great national poet. Now, Bob tells us, Bob, the host of Diane, not the, you know, <laughs> not the Twin Peaks spirit character. He says that uh, actually it was solved in 1995, a few years after the film. So Sam Stanley really did crack the Whitman case, maybe. So then Chet and Sam are driving toward Deer Meadow, and this is when they discuss the meaning of Lil's code. It's just hilarious how they break down every element of her little dance. So of course, Lil, just to remind you, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, this is the woman, the pale makeup, big poofy red, kind of almost like clown wig, and then the red dress, and she's making these artificial weird expressions and moves and gestures. Um, Martha Nockamson has written about this in her book, The Passion of David Lynch, as being kind of like a mock flat depiction of of like the female, basically, in a film that is very interested in feminine experience and the sort of interiority of characters like Laura. This is like the most superficial possible depiction of a woman where it's just this like total surface image. Everything about it, it's like made up and false. And uh, it's it's funny too that, that uh, you know, he, she, she also points out this follows the sequence where Gordon is standing against this beautiful natural backdrop, but it's just a flat mural on his wall. So kind of relating this idea that the FBI in this film can only kind of get at the surface of things. They can't quite get beneath it, even if they're trying, but Lil does all these moves and it just seems like a funny, wacky Lynch sequence. And then he breaks down everyone, which people have read in one of two ways. I think you could probably read it as both simultaneously. One being Lynch sincerely saying, Hey, pay attention to this film stuff. That seems like goofy brush off stuff. It's going to mean something and you should be able to interpret it. And other people saying, no, the point of this scene is how ridiculous it is that everybody's interpreting and theorizing about all the, the Lynch stuff to the, to the extent that they do. Um, I think you could sort of square those two readings together in the sense that the interpretations that they do make of Lil specifically are very silly. Like there's no relation between what she does and what the code means. There's no, like everything with Lynch is emotional and intuitive and there's nothing emotional or intuitive about, okay, sour face means local authorities are not receptive. Both eyes blinking means trouble higher up and so forth. It's like so arbitrary and silly that it is somewhat him winking at us, I think. So the others are one hand in her pocket means she's hiding something. One hand made a fist is belligerent. Walk in place means a lot of legwork. Okay, so these are, some of these are kind of literal. It's, it varies between like very overly literal clues and some that are just like completely arbitrary. Another one is mother's sister's girl. When, when Gordon calls her that, it means the uncle is missing. And shots of the fingers in front of the face uh, means federal prison. And I think here's the ridiculous one that I'm thinking of. <laughs> Jet says to Sam, tailored dresses are code for drugs. 
like what what a sentence that is just what a what a quote taken in isolation and then of course there is one more thing the blue rose on her lapel he says i can't tell you about that and there we are again blue this blue is like a motif for for fire walk with me so then we have again the scene where chet is uh in the sheriff's station trying to find out about teresa and uh, we see a flag reflected in the window by the Deer Meadow entrance. So again, U.S. American flag, stars and stripes. Uh, the secretary has the most annoying laughter and whispers ever, like hilariously so. Uh, just this idea of the, like, she's like the anti-Lucy in a way, and Cliff is the anti-Andy. Just these cruel, nasty characters. It's so obnoxious, but makes me laugh every time, just the like, like leans down and whispers in her ear and just like laughing as she's like trying to hold it in. And it, it it's, it's a brilliantly observed portrait of like somebody really trying to annoy you and succeeding. And then of course, that's when he grabs Cliff's nose, barges in on the sheriff. I love Sheriff Cable's response when Chet enters the room, says, how the hell did you get in here? Like, he's truly stunned, as if he had barbed wire and layers of security around his office. Like, dude, you're, you're in a house with, like, a little desk in front. Like, calm down. <laughs> of course he can get to you. He calls him a J. Edgar, which I love. Definitely a, a Lynch Engels touch of this kind of hokey throwback type of humor. A little flag on the desk with pens. So, again, the American flag you know, often associated with the, not the most uh, savory characters here, interestingly. So this idea of like America, Americana, the official order and authority that either can't or won't uh, protect those in need. And then, of course, uh, Chet sees on the wall after he's had his little back and forth with Cable and says, you know, the operative word here is federal. Give me those Teresa Banks files. And he's walking out with the files. He looks on the wall and he sees a photo of Sheriff Cable bending a steel rod, and it says Cable bends steel, and Cable kind of smirks. So we don't get much follow-through with that in uh, this, in the Firewalk with me, but uh, maybe we will in the missing pieces. We'll have to wait and see. So Chet and Sam enter the morgue to look at Teresa's body, and as they do so, Sam, who through the previous scene has been like looking around the room and saying something to himself that we can't hear. He says, the whole office, furniture included, is $27,000. And Chet looks at him like, what? Who the fuck cares? What are you talking about? So then Chet and Sam go in. They do the autopsy on Teresa. They yank off her fingernail. And uh, it reminds me, it's, it's a much more like graphic version of what we see on the show. And it reminds me of an article from 1990 where I think Frost is quoted as talking about how David likes to push boundaries and like the pulling the thing with tweezers out from under the fingernail. It's like right on that boundary line, but not quite over it. Like he knows where to stop. And of course in this film, he doesn't stop. Uh, but it's interesting that it's so abstract that it seems almost less disturbing than the original scene when I'm watching it for me. Anyways, when I'm watching them pull the, put the tweezers under the fingernail, it's like, I can feel it. I'm like, Oh, uh, stop. But in this, it's like, Oh, they're cracking this weird, pink thing open and oh yeah i guess that's a fingernail but it's like you almost don't think of it as you're watching because lynch is just so focused on the texture of it so this is where they get a lot of the details about Teresa's death we're going to save that for the who killed Teresa Banks section and then chet tells sam they're going to go to haps diner so they go there they talk to the man in the diner hallway he tells them her name is irene and it's night don't go any further with it there's nothing good about it and uh, John Thorne has written an essay about this. It's an obvious reference to the song Good Night, Irene. So he's saying, yeah, her name's Irene and it's night, but it's not a good night. 
Uh, and it's a funny throwaway line, but John reads more into it because there's lyrics in the song that uh, Irene, I'll see you in my dreams. And it plays into this idea of uh, that he has of this sequence being a dream in some way. And I think that's also quoted on and uh, in the uh, series at some point. Somebody says, I'll see you in my dreams. I'm trying to remember who says that. Like I can hear it almost. One of you will remember, I'm sure, and remind me. And popping in from the future to say, yes, some listeners did remind me of what that was. It's Bobby saying it to Norma in the pilot. I'll see you in my dreams. And she says, not if I see you first. We have the scene of Chet and Sam inside the diner. It's funny, I always read the scene as like they were talking to this Jack guy and the weird electrician with the buzzing stuff going in that that room, that that was like the entryway into the diner. They were passing through on their way. But actually, no, like their their cups are already there on the counter. Their, their space is prepared. The waitress is familiar with them. She's pouring some more coffee in. So they've been there a while. And if you read the script, that's clear. There was some cut stuff of them entering the diner and them saying, go in that back room there and talk to Jack. Irene has a flounder pin on her sweater. Interestingly enough, a little fish pin. It makes me think of how this whole section of the film, the Deer Meadow stuff, it goes heavy on the kitschy iconography. Like there's tons of animal heads and like fish on the walls, everything is wood, everything has funny signs like the Haps Diner or this or that. Um, You know, and I suppose the Roadhouse does in the pilot, but for the most part, the pilot is much more realistically textured than at least this first part of Firewalk with me. Uh, Deer Meadow, in a way, is almost more peaksy than the pilot is. Like more, you know, because it's, they sort of developed an aesthetic as the show went along that was hinted at in the pilot, but emerged more fully later. And now, even though this is a prequel, it's, it sort of builds upon that. It reminds me in a way of like with the Star Wars films, how it's like in the prequel, it seems like, wait, why is the technology so much more advanced than in the other films? It's because, well, they've sort of developed this stuff as they went along. And, and uh, you know, that there, there's the inner chronology of a work and the outer chronology. And I think Firewalk With Me as a prequel has uh, elements of both. But at any rate, there's the exchange with Irene where... Uh, Sam, she's telling Sam and Chet, I never took, because Chet asked her, did you, did you take cocaine, Irene? It's sort of smirking again as he does. She says, I never took cocaine or any other drug. I don't take drugs. And then Sam comes up with his caffeine and nicotine line that we talked about. And she says, who's the toehead? Which I love. Another anachronistic expression, I guess you could say, where I, I always thought toehead had something to do with like your hair, like your hair was sticking up something, but apparently it just means a blonde. There's the couple sitting at the counter who keeps saying, are you talking about that little girl who got murdered? And people have read them because it's like a French woman, so foreigner, and uh, this older guy in like a plaid shirt. Are they like Deer Meadows' version of Pete and Josie? Just like Irene is like their version of Norma and so forth and, you know, so on. Uh, there, yet again, American Flag Watch. There's a flag in Haps behind the counter. Uh, this reminds me that this... This sequence was shot just a few months after the big Gulf War parade. So those uh, big D.C. and New York and probably all these small towns had them too, these big flag-waving parades to celebrate the Gulf War victory because this film was shot in like September of 91. Uh, There's also two chainsaws sticking out of a log in the middle of the diner. I I don't know when I noticed that before. It's, It's very obscured. It's like a fun set piece that Lynch just keeps in the background, basically. But it's like just a log with two chainsaws jutting out on either end, like antennas almost. 
So Chet and Sam go from there to Fat Trout Trailer Park, where they meet Carl Rod. The writing on his door says, do not knock before 9 a.m. ever. And there's all these notes on there. I read, uh, Rod, my cat is gone. Millie, Rod, I'm moving out. Sam, Rod, my fridge does not stay cold. Larry, uh, Rod, my trailer has a leak. Fix it by tomorrow. That one's a little more commanding. And then the the there's one that just makes me laugh. The way it's phrased seems like kind of a lynchism. Rod, the hole in my roof is getting bigger. Let me know. Bert, number 17. And it's funny that they all spell his name R-O-D, even though in the credits it's spelled R-O-D-D. So I don't know. I guess that goes with his uh, general discontent that uh, nobody in the trailer knows his actual name. So they tell him they're looking for Teresa and, uh, you know, asking questions just as they did at the diner. I kind of got sidetracked by those other details, but, you know, they're asking Irene about, uh, Teresa when she worked there, you think she, you know, Irene suspects she took drugs and all of that. And here Carl is, they're asking Carl to see, uh, uh, Teresa's trailer where she lived. And he says, Oh, it's just more shit I gotta do. He's got all these great expressions. And then one thing he says, which is like, Kind of a disturbing little joke, especially when it you think of what Firewalk with Me is about, is he says, it's like Uncle's Day at a whorehouse around here, implying that, you know, all these uncles are like lusting after their nieces or something. And of course, um, you know, in the film, we get we get uh, the fulfillment of that idea with with the Leland Lara stuff. So it's it's interesting how that very serious theme is just sort of introduced here as like a, a dark dark comedy joke that uh that that carl sort of mentions offhand similar to how a lot of stuff in firewalk with me is it's it's given to us in a sort of backhanded way that then we have to kind of pull back in later so chet and sam go and explore Teresa's trailer they see a strange lady approaches with an ice pack over her eye Um, grail marcus notes in the the shape of things to come that uh, Teresa banks her trailer seems to be the only one with a little white picket fence around it. A very interesting observation. Now it's like, I don't, I don't even know quite what to make of that. I just, I just find it interesting that this character, it's like, she almost had these dreams of having kind of a, even though she's a very hardened, cynical character in the film, there's something about her that's like, you know, it could have just been something that was there when she rented the trailer, but I don't know. It kind of works as this idea Plus the idea that she is trying to sort of keep herself, you know, she she has a certain defense system, which is uh, what she ultimately, I mean, ironically, it's it's that sense of self-preservation and self-advancement and having likes power to counter somebody else's power that actually leads her to get killed by Leland as she uh, as she blackmails him. There are a lot of theories about the woman with the ice pack. People see her as the uh, Deer Meadow version of the log lady. Uh, there was a theory for a long time that she was played by David Lynch in drag. Not the case. There's an interview with this actress, which I'll link below, about how Lynch got her involved and was like, come on over. You got you got to, you, you know, called her up when she was supposed to be shooting and she had just gotten in like a car accident or something. She's like, oh, I can't come. I don't think that's why. I think the ice pack is you know, planned, but she had something had happened. She couldn't make it. He's like, no, it's gotta, you gotta be, it's gotta be you. You gotta come. And he got her there to play it. So another idea, Christian Hartleban, a, uh, Twin Peaks, big Twin Peaks fan, OG going back to the old days, uh, on the Usenet board and all that. He thought that maybe 
she was beaten up by Cliff Howard because she knew too much. And that maybe even that's the bandaid above, I think he says this, the bandaid above Carl Rod's forehead as well. Like Cliff has been roughing people up in the trail park. Like don't tell the FBI anything because he's somehow involved with Teresa, maybe through the drug deals and stuff. And uh, he does live in this trailer park. And there was supposed to be a scene where Cliff Howard comes in and is accosting them and they have a back and forth insulting and, the scene was shot, but it was not a, it wasn't even in the missing pieces. And I think the reason that this may not be in the film uh, could be because Lynch wasn't satisfied with uh, Rick Aiello's performance, Rick Aiello, who plays Cliff Howard. And this is according to uh, Aiello himself. In the Twin Peaks Unwrapped book, he's interviewed, and he says when he shot his first scene with Lynch, he was like coming into a trailer, and he was very like fast-paced, like playing it like he would normally play a cop character in the movies. He's been in Spike Lee movies and stuff, always playing a cop or a gangster. And uh, Lynch was like, no, 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 slow, slow way down and got him to like keep slowing and slowing. But it may have been that this scene, just the tempo of it didn't work for Lynch. So he cut it out or it just didn't fit in with the overall flow. But it's interesting that we don't even see it among the deleted scenes later. That could just be because it was lost. Some footage was lost. But um, I I was intrigued to read that pretty recently and find that out that that scene was shot and that was Lynch's reaction. So then Chet argues with Sheriff Cable about moving Teresa's body out of the, the morgue. He's got an FBI van. He wants to take it off to uh, to Portland, I think, so that Stan, Sam Stanley can do some nerve work and find out why her left arm went numb, if, that was, if, if it was drugs or something else. And uh, the sheriff is refusing, and they have a back and forth. And then Chet kind of changes the subject because they were intrigued by a photo of Teresa wearing a ring in the... Uh, in the in the trailer and he says you know anything about a ring she had and uh also maybe accusing them of stealing it because they wouldn't seem to be above it and chat uh, or rather cable smirks says i got a phone here it's got a little ring <laughs> that's how the scene ends and uh, there was much more scripted than that uh, which is in the missing pieces so i won't spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it yet but there is a follow-up to that scene that shows us how this conflict was resolved and so then Chet tells Sam that he's going to go back to the trailer park. He's got to go back for more. And and uh, Sam said, you know, it's, I can't remember if he mentions that he's looking for the ring, but Sam brings up the blue rose. It's something to do with the blue rose, right? He's intrigued by this classification that uh, Gordon and Chet seem to use for cases. Some, something about the case is a blue rose case. So Chet goes back to the park. He talks to Carl and... Uh, they're, they're kind of having their conversation about, they, they bring up Cliff Howard and where his trailer is, so Chet's going to check that out, but he then is pulled in another direction, and this is an interesting moment where we see, this is something we'll talk about in the mythology, this telephone pole with a number six on it, and hear a noise, and, and uh, there's a moment where like Chet is standing there, and uh, the, this woman has come up to Carl and said, "I, you know, the, the hot water lady that we talked about, and he, she kind of leads him off. And as Grail Marcus writes, there's like a brief moment where Chet is like alone in the frame. Literally, it's like just a few, it's no more than a second, maybe only a few frames. Like you barely register it. But Marcus is so fascinated by this moment, he writes this whole kind of beautiful uh, uh, meditation on this single image of Chet standing there at dusk with the mountains behind him and the trailers around him. I just read this whole passage in uh, the 
podcast that I did for Bigger Than Life and, and also talking about uh, the location of Fat Trout Trailer Park. So it kind of came up. And at the end of the podcast, uh, which I'll link in the show notes, I, I read this whole great passage by Grail Marcus. And on second thought, since this is now being released as a public episode, I'm just going to place that quote that I read in the other patron episode right here so you can hear it. So here's the quote from Grail Marcus that I uh, read and alluded to when I was releasing this for patrons. You begin to notice the state of the trailers. Except for Banks's, which has a white picket fence around it, they are decrepit, peeling, cracking, boarded up, abandoned. The residents are blind and crippled. This is the residential hotel as garbage dump, or the last frontier of what could be called a town, a place that deserves a California gold rush name, rough and ready or confidence for irony, maybe, hang town or slough house for what it is. Desmond sends Stanley and the body off to Portland. With dusk coming on, he returns to Fat Trout to check out the trailer where the sheriff's deputy lives. He says, though the way he walks and talks says something else, this is a place he cannot stay away from. It has a kind of gravity that can't be found anywhere else. The fact that there's another trailer in the place belonging to someone at least formally connected to the case is, if nothing else, an excuse to go back. The park operator banters with Desmond. Then he walks a complaining woman with a stiff leg out of the frame. And for a moment, Desmond occupies the center of a shot, so perfect, it becomes less a frame in a film than a painting on a wall, a painting that is also a door. Though the shot occupies a split second, in memory it can expand until it seems like an entire scene, as if everything the film has done with Desmond up to this point has been nothing but an excuse to get him here, standing exactly as he is. For its moment, it is one of the most complete and uncanny images of America ever produced. Desmond is standing in the center of the picture, in his trench coat, with his feet planted on muddy ground, framed off-center by a line of smashed-together trailers and splintering shacks on this right, the line fading out in a receding perspective. The same sort of structures are on his left, but with less weight. The lanky FBI agent is himself the weight, the only anchor the shot has. The longer you look, freezing the frame, the more abstract it feels, the more everything feels as if it's floating off the ground. Earlier, showing Desmond around Fat Trout, the park operator had stopped, looked at a telephone pole as if it were alive, as if it were reminding him it would kill him if he tells what it knows. Now Desmond sees the telephone pole, though really the feeling is that it sees him. Behind Desmond is a desiccated fir tree. Far beyond that are the purple mountains you know from America the Beautiful. In the instant, a scene from the country's founding plays itself out again, Fitzgerald imagining the first Dutch sailors to reach American shores. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate for his capacity for wonder. It's that contemplation that now fills Desmond's face, and if a trailer park can stand for a country, and a fat trout is saying that this country has been abandoned, no one left but people who have reached its absolute dead end. I've been places, the park operator has said a minute before, begging the agent to accept his cowardice, to not ask why he doesn't want to talk about Teresa Banks's murder or anything else. I just want to stay where I am. The mountains that form the backdrop to the ruins around Desmond say what they have always said, 
there was no last time. The wonder that was there to be seen nearly 400 years before and 200 years after that through the eyes of the Hudson River painters is as visible now as it ever was. What has been used up is not the wonder, but the eyes of the people below the mountains, the country that set itself up in their shadow. But there's a part just after the passage that I didn't read that I'll read here, which is Desmond stands before the mountains alone, and then the wrecked trailers and shacks are just a scrap heap. No one has lived in them for years. Only the mountains are real. Under the eye of the mountains, Isaacs Desmond stands for a peculiarly American loneliness, for the way anyone can be swallowed up by the vast emptiness of the landscape, as if he or she had never been born. All this happens, or is shown, is composed in an instant, but it's where Firewalk With Me signals that it is playing for keeps. And here we're beginning to transition to the end of this non-Lara material and to see what that really means. Uh, one other thing I want to mention about this small scene, the sequence where uh, Chet goes and looks under the trailer. We talked about that in terms of Chet's disappearance. But as he's approaching that trailer, there's like this beautiful gold light all around. It's inside. It's like emanating from within the trailer. It also seems like maybe a reflection in the window cast by the sunset. There's a band of gold plating across the bottom and also the propane tanks. So this kind of glow to the sequence of, of where he finds the ring underneath the trailer there. So then we move on to the last part of the Deer Meadow investigation, which is Cooper following up, coming to visit Carl, find out what happened both to Chet and also just maybe what Chet learned about Teresa as well. Although uh, there's a sequence that was cut where he goes to Sam and gets more of those specific details. So he's more in Deer Meadow to find out about Chet, but obviously it touches upon some of the uh, of the Teresa material as well, especially finding out that there's a trailer which is gone now, which is that trailer that Chet just reached under. Carl and Cooper, um, a lot of C names in this, they go up to the, the Chet's car and they see Let's Rock scrawled across it in lipstick. And uh, in this moment, then we dissolve to the Wind River, to Cooper standing, talking to Diane in his tape recorder, saying he thinks the killer will strike again. But as the song goes, who knows where or when? And there's a couple interesting things about this. One is, as John Thorne has written about the Goodnight Irene song, there are references to dreams in this song, who knows where or when. And uh, that, that feeds into this idea of that, you know, of this whole sequence as a dream. And then also it feels like a nod to Stanley Kubrick and Dr. Strangelove, because there's a song, I believe it's the same song, at the end of Dr. Strangelove, where the, all the atomic clouds are going off, and these, they're singing, we'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. And, uh, you know, that the Kubrick connection with Lynch is a strong one. It's a director he's very... Uh, admiring of and honestly I think maybe in some of his later work you see more of a Kubrick touch but uh, something maybe we'll come back to there so that's it for Cooper and the FBI and Deer Meadow but Teresa Banks investigation keeps coming up throughout the film sprinkled throughout we have Laura seeing Teresa's ring in her dream so the little man presents it to her holds it aloft and uh, Cooper stares at it and looks back at Lara and says, you know, don't take the ring. But the, the so we'll talk about how that 
ties in with Laura's story, but just this idea that Teresa's presence is continuing in the narrative seems important right here. And her death is also acknowledged by Laura and Renette and Jacques in the Partyland nightclub, where uh, they also how she might have died is hinted at because Renette says she's been dead a year. Teresa Jacques says she asked me what your father's looked like. She's going to blackmail somebody. And Laura's like taken aback in that moment. And it all gets sort of brushed pack in the cha- or brushed past in the chaos of the moment. There's the one-armed man showing up in traffic, waving Teresa's ring around, making oblique references that sound like they are to Teresa. It says the look on her face when it was opened, you stole the can, uh, uh, you know, all this sounds like gobbledygook, but we'll break it down a little more when we discuss mythology. And then there's a flashback to Leland with Teresa lying in bed in the motel. And he says, he covers her eyes and he says, who am I? She says, I don't know. And he says, that's right. So this idea that he is relishing his power over knowing her not knowing his identity. And when she does, you know, that's, that's, uh, there's trouble brewing. And then there's a flashback to Leland chickening out on Teresa's rendezvous. From her perspective at this point, we don't quite know why. It's just, he seems suddenly nervous about something, but she starts to add it up in her head. And what could it mean? And in this very moment, as Leland's walking away, the grandson appears, the little Tremond boy, Pierre Tremond, the small boy in the, in the white pointy mask, who is dressed with like Lynch, has Lynch's hairdo, was played by Lynch's son on the show, although this is a different actor in the film. For whatever reason, they couldn't work with the son. But this character, I think the only child in Firewalk With Me, other than the kids screaming on the school bus, I guess. But he starts leaping around in the parking lot and fades away. And Leland doesn't seem to see him. And Teresa is looking in the other direction, but she keeps looking back and... It feels like the Tremont characters, just like the ring, just like some other elements of the story, kind of belong to Teresa in a way. They were they lived in this trailer that she was apparently killed at. Uh, they carried the ring possibly, and she saw the boy in this moment, or we see the boy, but it seems like it might be mediated through her, like he is a token of some realization. It's fascinating to me that this moment, in this parking lot, in this motel, this casual, sordid rendezvous is really the birth of all Twin Peaks. You know, this is the moment where uh, everything is set in motion. So then we have a couple more instances in the film of Teresa, Laura flashing back to Teresa's ring and uh, seeing it in these three different, seeing Teresa brushing her hair brushing her hand across her face and she sees the ring that's the same ring that the little man showed her in the dream that the one-armed man waved at her at the intersection and then downstairs Leland is pacing back and forth in the living room and it's intercut with a flashback of him smashing Teresa's head in in the trailer and her uh, falling to the ground and dying that's it for this episode. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. You could support it on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow, we begin the focus on Laura. I'm calling it uh, Laura Palmer's Outer Circle. So her kind of worldly connections in a way, the people outside of her home that she had uh, interactions with, Jacques, Harold, uh, the world of prostitution, the world of uh, drugs, also 
some of the more, I suppose, positive aspects that the charity work that she did. And uh, also, in a way, her inner life. I'm calling it her outer circle because it sort of intersects with the larger spirit world. But uh, it's going to be those types of storylines, really, the scenes in the film that deal with those storylines. And then the following day, we'll go, we'll move closer toward her close friends and family and her murder eventually. But uh, tomorrow, it will be Laura's outer circle. I want to close this section off before we move on to the Laura storylines. With another passage from Grail Marcus, this is how he uh, partially ends. He actually ends with that quote about Chet Desmond and maybe he went off into the woods. But there's another passage right before that, which is sort of broader in its implications. And I think makes a really good lead in to the Laura Palmer material and what that does to our understanding of Twin Peaks and the limitations of the show and everything that has to do with that. So Grail Marcus writes... There is mumbo-jumbo all through Firewalk with me, just as there was when Twin Peaks was running through the woods on TV. But where on Twin Peaks, the aliens and spirits and incorporeal villains finally turned the characters into fairy folk and the story into a shaggy dog, wagging its tail like a finger. In Firewalk with me, the mystification draped over the story is repelled by the desperation of its subject and the woman who plays her. And Lynch fails to carry out the betrayal of his story that he himself has plotted. There is no way for Lynch to explain away what he has put on the screen. There is no way for him to erase what he knows actually happens, or what he doesn't know. When it is that the true secret of a town is revealed, and how it is suppressed. (laughs) 